This Quiercast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes Very explore optimistic. new <laughs> challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, nah, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right and you're wrong. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't do- find me by what I do in bed. You think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. You still choose to ejaculate to that. Oh my god. You can have a wife and a girlfriend. This guy just gets your face. Rubs that in. Break your bias. Each week, anywhere you get your podcast, tune in. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. (laughs) Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. Hit, hit the button, hit the button. Could you one time just kick it, John? Could you one time just kick it? Kyle, could you could you one time just kick it, Kyle? Sorry, I, I sometimes <laughs> lapse into my really, really bad tenacious D. <laughs> uh, I'm going to stop. All right. Um, so, hey, welcome to the... You can't interrupt me while I'm talking and point to your cocktail. Well, I just was, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here drinking this old fashioned and, uh, the words, your wise words came to me. Which was at the moment. You're like, like, cause I was telling you, I was saving all my crappy whiskey for mixed drinks. You're right. Like, Why would you make a good mixed drink out of crappy whiskey? Don't you want a good mixed drink? So this, my friend, is an old fashioned made with Weller. And it's amazing, right? Yes, it is. I'm telling you, it's the same thing I used to tell people when they would cook with wine and they would cook with crappy wine. Yeah. Like, why would you put crappy wine in your food? Cook with good wine. I'm not saying like the $20,000 bottle of wine. That's stupid. But at the same time, I've had a, uh, I've had an old fashioned with, <laughs> we were screwing around one day. We were going to have a, a whiskey tasting with some friends and we, I don't know if I told you this or not, but I bought a really bottom shelf bottle of whiskey. I mean, yeah. bottom shelf, right? And I was going to slip it into one of my empty, Weller bottles and see if the whiskey snobs could figure out they were drinking crap whiskey. Yeah. We didn't do that. I decided that was mean, but I did make a few cocktails out of it. And yeah, that was bad. I mean, you can mix it with Coke and it was okay. But anyway, I was in a, I was in some liquor stores in New York when we were there and I found some really amazing stuff as you, if you had the money, there was some fun stuff to be had. Well, it's got like, I think I sent you that message, right? About the, the, the two bottles that the grand opening. Oh, the OFC, uh, the freaking old fashioned, what yeah. was it? Oh, the Buffalo Trace, like Buffalo dude, Trace, OFC they're, 1994 and OFC 1995. Yeah, there are versions of that. I'm not sure those years, but I looked. There are versions of that that go for like seventy to eighty thousand dollars. Those uh, were two thousand dollars at retail price, and secondary price was twelve grand. Yeah, that's just nuts. If I could have got my hands on one of those, oh, oh I'd have paid retail for it probably because then I could have flipped. Oh yeah. It. No, I, and I would have. I, I wouldn't have I kept would, that one. I would have. I, that would have been have, the beginning of my new business. <laughs> <laughs> Flipping rare whiskey. So, yep. all right. Well, if you haven't figured this out by now, everybody, uh, this is the podcast and this is what you're in for. So John and I are here. <laughs> this is not church because as we keep saying, if it was, you'd have left by now. That's right. And we would have invited you. To, we actually would have come with you. What are we talking about? <laughs> you left and we'd have been like, yeah, where are we going? Yeah. To a where's, bar, the locus, where's the locus, local, the, the closest local pub? But we are we're just something a little different tonight. Uh, we don't have any guests except us. If you don't already know this, you should know this. 
that my um, my brother John, in coordination with a whole bunch of other amazing people like Jason and Brandy Elam and Keith Giles and December Rose, and the list will go on and on. I'm sure John will make sure everyone gets proper mention. But they've all collaborated on a book called Parenting Deconstructed. And so we're just going to talk about that tonight. And we've actually posed a few questions into our, uh, our, our private Facebook group. So we'll answer some of those questions that people have posed inside of the group. But uh, we just want to make sure and talk a little bit about this book. I, I wish I'd thought of it, John, if I'm oh, being yeah. honest. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. Um, because we, this is not the only book that exists about parenting in a deconstruction way. We've had one more guest on that we've talked about this to us to some degree. Right. And I remember telling her when we had her and I, was it Becca? Was that the, the name of the, um, you're going to put me on the it, spot. It, it, it escapes me, but that's, that's fine. But I remember telling that author when, when they were on, I was like, Oh, this is so smart. There's not enough stuff written about this. We talk about personal deconstruction all the time, but on a practical side, there are ramifications, especially for people who are still raising kids. And there's ramifications for those of us who have raised our kids, you know. So how do you deconstruct, how do you deconstruct and still parent, or how do you parent inside of this paradigm of deconstruction when you're still somewhat battling the programming of religious indoctrination on how you're supposed to raise kids? So John got invited to this by 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 Jason Elam and contributed a chapter. Uh, we can talk about the book a little bit, kind of what the what the what the the purpose of it was, and maybe talk a little bit about your chapter, and then we can jump into some questions. What do you think, man? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way, and I got to give credit to Jason and Brandy Elams, you know, as they as they reached out to a bunch of us to do this book, uh, and and we talked about this a little bit. We had like these little launch parties uh, with the authors on different days. I was in the last group with I remember who was in my group. I know that uh, Matthew Destefano, December Rose. Uh, I believe Jonathan Puddle, myself, Ben DeLong were in the group. And I'm, uh, Jason was there too. He kind of facilitates it. But one of the first things that really, that really struck me was there was no, uh, there was no agenda. Jason didn't say, Hey, I want you to write on this topic. I want you to write on this topic. And we've seen this before in some other, some other books that Choir has done with multiple authors is they don't really, they don't really push to have a specific subject. And then it all just seems to fall into place and kind of work. Yeah, so weird, huh? The book kind of falls into some uh, different, I think they've kind of put it into different parts, if I remember right. So there's part one, which is uh, uh, moving beyond regret. Part two, which is finding common ground. And part three, removing obstacles to relationships. And I believe that was the last group, uh, which is the one I was in. But yeah, I'll, I'll list all the names of everyone who contributed and I would recommend that everybody checks out all these people. And then I would also recommend that you get this book, not because of the chapter I wrote, but because of all the other chapters that are just amazing. But uh, we had contributors, Derek Day, Ben DeLong, Phil Drysdale, Matthew DiStefano, Elizabeth and Christopher Aker, Carl and Laura Far- Forehand, Keith Giles, Dr. Mark Karras, Joshua Lawson, Jonathan Puddle, Myself, December Rose, and then of course Jason and Brandy Elam. So we all just wrote to our perspective, right? Because that's really all we can do. I can't write to someone else's perspective on how deconstruction works. And Nat and I have talked about this before, right? Where um, my perspective of deconstruction is somewhat different than a lot of the people going through it right now because I I started this so damn long ago, 
where there was no word for deconstruction. I mean, I, I know the word existed. Nat would have to be more, Nat would have to clarify more on when, when exactly. Uh, I don't actually know, but I think when you quote unquote started deconstructing, we would have just called it apostasy. <laughs> Because you 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 didn't go, you didn't set about to do it out of any sense of like I'm going to figure out the real Christianity. Right. You were just like, nah, f all this, I'm done. This whole church thing is stupid. So that was more of, I mean, it it led to a period of deconstruction. Yeah, I think everybody goes through at some point. I remember talking to Jeff Turner and and talking about his dalliances with atheism, and as he put it, he tried. Yeah. Like, he, like life would have been easier, I think, for him. And a lot of us, honestly, have, I think I, I could speak for myself. I think I could speak for you because you were a self-described atheist for a long time. I never really believed it, but I tried, man. I did try because I really thought at one point that that was the most intellectually honest position. I fall more on the lines of like hardcore agnosticism anymore. Even as a pastor, I'm like, <laughs> there are days when I'm very agnostic. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. But I, I, so I don't think there's any specific, um, I don't think you can point to, you know, like you could talk about, you know, we t- like we've talked about with say Kristen Dumay and uh, Beth Allison Barr, and we can talk about, hey, the the, the moral majority began, oh, right. uh, you know, so the rise of the evangelical church as we see it now, we can directly link to the rise of the moral majority in the 80s and say, okay, that's, we can see that, that, that beginning of a pivot. When it comes to this deconstruction thing, it is so personal. It is so different. I, I don't know. I, for me, I could say a few years, you know, it's still a relatively new thing, but I remember talking to Brian McLaren and saying, oh, except that I see the emergent church of the 90s and 2000s as having morphed into this, if that makes sense. Like that movement kind of dwindled, but I don't think it went away. I think it got legs as it moved into people who are now taking it to the next step. So anyway, so you your, your experience is definitely unique. Yeah, well, unique as opposed to the more, the more common version of a, of a deconstruction story. I don't think I'm unique in saying that other people at my time were doing the same thing. I think there was quite a few of us. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. But we didn't have, we didn't have a venue to address it. We didn't have a place to get together and chat about it. You know, it was a period of everybody that I knew who I considered a friend abandoned, you know, abandoning me. And so I'm walking this, you know, I'm not going to say alone because I, you know, in the midst of this, I got married to my wife. Uh, we, you know, we waited a while to have kids, but. So I, I wasn't walking alone, but I was definitely my lifelong family friends. They were all gone. Let, let, let me let me ask you a question based on that because you just you made me think of something. Because this ha- I, I hear this I hear this sort of come up when it comes to parenting. So I'll link this way. For some reason, the people in your life who were religious felt like they needed to like not associate with you out of some sense right. of religious duty to bring you back. Right. <laughs> it's, it's fucked up. Don't get me wrong. But I have heard parents who have like washed their hands of their kids even. Yeah. As they've walked away from the faith and said, well, if you're not going to be, you know, well, then I don't know how much I can have to do with you. And they might not come out and say those words, but distance grows between them as they try to 
as every conversation, if they have one, seems to be agenda driven. Right. Like we can talk, but we're always going to end up back on the same conversation of when are you coming back to church? Yeah. Like when are you going to stop, you know, breaking Jesus's heart, John? You know, <laughs> when are you, what, what, you know, when are you going to come back to the, to the true faith? So is there something sort of inextricably linked into evangelical theology and culture and whatever that says, like, you're either with me or, or you're against me. And that can even apply to our kids. Well, I don't, I don't know if it started out that way. Uh, I think it definitely, you know, 9-11, I think definitely started a, and I'm sure we could point it farther back than that. But for me, 9-11 was where I really started seeing this like modern day holy war against anything that was opposed to the, uh, the moral majority, the, the, the Christian right. But for me, I think what it was, was this whole statement of you need to be in the world, but not of it. And that's where most of the people that I was, you know, close friends with during my time in church, that was the argument that they made to me was like, well, if you're going to go out and be part of this world, we can't associate with you because we have been told to be in it, but not of it. And so they had to make a conscious choice to break ties with me be it right or wrong, you know, I, I str- strongly believe it's wrong because I don't see Jesus doing that ever. Yeah, it's, it's really misguided. I mean, did it ever occur to you too, though, that the people that you, that you lost touch with or who, that, who, who started to maybe avoid you in this process, that maybe the only reason you were friends anyway was you had that thing in common and once oh, yeah. you didn't have that thing anymore, like that friendship yeah. was apparently so damn superficial, it couldn't survive a difference of opinion. Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. And then so what, what came of that is, you know, as I moved forward, you know, created new friendships, but because, and I talk about this in the chapter because I go at it a different way. So my chapter talks about in, in a roundabout way. I don't even think I talk about it in this specific terms, but I talk about generational trauma, which within evangelical church would be considered the generational sin. Right. Which I think, I think generational is, curse. Right. Ooh. The curse or the sin, right? The, the secret sin that has, has brought your family down. I truly believe in generational trauma. I think there's science to back it up. No, I uh, absolutely agree. There's, sure. there's science that backs up that shows that, you know, during, uh, or after, sorry, I should say after the Holocaust, that there is some like specific genetic and DNA markers that happen within the, the generations after the Holocaust that shows that this trauma not only affected the people who were legitimately in the concentration camps, but it affected genetically and within the DNA of the offspring. Wow. And so that being said, uh, and this was actually posed to me by a friend of mine who's uh, African-American, uh, as we were talking about generational trauma within you know, the, the, the ancestors of slaves. It's like, well, is there generational trauma potentially connected to the other side. Are we, in a sense, and I'm doing this in air quotes, are we, in a sense, cursed because of the hatred that our our ancestors put on a marginalized group and that we genetically are predisposed to be that way, in a, in a sense, and that, that's, a, that's something we have to break down and we have to battle. Whereas, I mean, we have, we, I think we have to acknowledge that, that if there's a generational trauma that happens on one side, there has to be a generational trauma that happens on the other side. And that means that 
I have to fight daily this inherent idea of racism hmm. or okay. misogyny. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's any science to back that up, but it's a very interesting question. But that being said, you know, and I had to talk to our parents about this book because I was like, you know, I, I need to let you know, I, I write about you and I write about my grandparents as, as I, as I explain why I am the way I am and who I am. And, uh, I think there's generational trauma that creates, uh, these stepping stones that we, that we are on that creates this vision that we are, that we can't get past. And that is, that the male figure is the breadwinner. He's stoic. He doesn't show love. He doesn't show affection. The way he shows love is through working 45, 50 hours a week, uh, bringing in a paycheck, make sure there's food on the table. He's obviously tired on the week, on his days off. He doesn't want to do anything. He's very unapproachable. Uh, and that's, I think the, that's part of the trauma that we are raised in. Now, did our parents, Want to be that? I don't no, think so. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. And then on top of that, I talk about how, you know, finances, uh, be what they are. And then our mother has to go to work. Right. Right. Yeah. And so deal. that, and that starts to break down this idea of what a male and female role is within the family. But at the same time, shame just rears its ugly head. And I, I, I can't speak for our parents because, um, I ne- I've never asked them outright, you know, was the, what was the shame involved in mom having to go to work to bring in money to help us survive? I mean, I, I could take a stab at it. I mean, right. if as a, you know, as a, as a male of his generation, I'm sure my father felt like, you know, I should be able to provide a living for my family. And uh, I can say that because that's how I felt. Right. You know, and we were fortunate, you know, in a lot of ways that for a lot of my kids' lives, um, their, their earlier years, we were able to do that, you know, and yeah. I, my, and my wife was able to stay home with our kids and we were able to have that more traditional family dynamic. But we also turned down opportunities and didn't pursue certain things because of our, I wouldn't even say it was necessarily our commitment to doing that that way it was because of a, of, of a, of a sense of obligation and the sense of expectation that we were supposed to do it that way. Right. That we weren't yeah. going to have, you know, I'm not going to have my kids in daycare and my wife doesn't need to work, you know, we had to get together. So there was all these expectations of gender roles that played into our decisions. You can ask him, my wife will tell you, <laughs> I came into our marriage with a whole lot of preconceived ideas about how, how things should go. Right. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, she was raised the same way I was raised. And so her expectations fell in line with mine. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of tension. I know that between you and Greta, that was not the case. She was not raised no. um, to be, you know, a subservient housewife. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. So she was raised primarily in a, in a single parent household. Her mom and her were, uh, you know, dad was out of the picture pretty quick. There was a, you know, a stepfather that was in and out of the, uh, in and out of the picture. I'm not really going to get into that, that person because. I, I do take one thing to heart that my parents always told me is if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's so. not true. You talk shit about people all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but not so, about, but not necessarily about people you know. I talk right. about, I might talk crap about public figures, but I don't bring my, yeah. 
I understand what you're saying. I'm just messing with you. But uh, so her her attitude towards a relationship with between a, a man and a woman, or uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't narrow it down to that to a to a uh, spouse situation was very different than mine. And you know, I played the game. I you know, as we were dating, you know, I was very open minded, very okay with everything that she had going on in her life. Didn't really bother me, but I, I have to be a, you know, I have to be brutally honest and say that, you know, once I asked her to marry me, I expected some things to change, right? <laughs> yeah, um, of course. And the first thing I expected was that I didn't have to change, <laughs> uh, that I could continue to be the guy that I was, which was, you know, I go hang out with my buddies, go drinking. I didn't have to worry about the house. I didn't clean the dishes. I didn't do the laundry, all that shit. And so there's a reason why my wife and I did not have kids for nine years. And that's because she had to raise me first. (laughs) And that was a project. (laughs) Absolutely a project. And, um, you know, I like to say that when we decided, you know, when it came down to having kids that I had, you know, I found the error of my ways and I was a better human being and I was a night. No, no. Absolutely not. Shame has a just a, a horrible way of rearing its ugly head over and over and over again. Every time you think you've pushed it down, it pops out. I think it's, you know, Carl Forehand says, you know, as you push this stuff down, all you do is you make it have to come out sideways yep. in some weird way. Uh, so my anger, my uncontrollable anger popped out more than I'd like to admit as I'm trying to deal with the shame that has been so pervasive in my life that I don't know how to work around it as I'm trying to be this open-minded, liberal, progressive, you know, women's rights, uh, LGBTQI plus rights, Black Lives Matter. But all of that was put aside when it came to my family. And so my family, damn it, better toe the line. It better look like a perfect family when we are out in the public behind the closed doors and behind the walls of our house, we could, we can be the mess that we are, but out in public, my kids better portray the perfection that is our family. And my kids bore the brunt me for hammering that into them over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I mean, one of the biggest joys of my life was hearing how, Hearing other people tell me how how behaved my children were. Oh yeah, because now it reflects on my ability to raise good kids. So like, oh man, your kids are just the best. I'm like, well, yeah, because I, you know, because I raised them well. So yeah, it's good I scared on the me. shit out of them. Yeah. Now, now, granted, your kids and my kids are generally pretty damn good kids. Yeah, they are. But there was what? I, what? Here, here's my question then, because you and I raised our kids differently simply because I was still firmly inside of this institution called church. And so, and, you know, aspiring to be, aspiring to vocational ministry and all this stuff, there was an added bit of pressure on my kids to represent their aspiring pastor father well. But I remember asking you about this one time too, because was there pressure on you because you were so openly not in church and so openly pretty hostile towards the idea, but was then there, I think you were actually under more pressure to then go, and I can still raise good kids. 
outside of your structure. Don't so the, so anytime is it fair to say that if 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 they were to act up or be you know do something that was there was a there was a sense in which they might be like, well, see, you know, if you're raising your kids in the church, you wouldn't be having these problems, John. Yeah. So subconsciously, because I don't think I ever told my kids outright, but subconsciously it was we have we have to be better than the church kids, the church families, because we are, uh, and specifically me, was so outspoken about how much the church harms and, and destroys that I had to show that morality was not based in church. Morality was based in human beings. And God forbid my kids do anything that would show that we didn't understand that. Uh, so there was a level of dissatisfaction when my kids stepped out of line. If I'm going to be, you know, in, if, if I'm going to be truthful and set the record straight, I scared the shit out of my kids on a regular basis. Um, to the point where they're like, why, why is dad even still here? Why, 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 why do we even allow him in our life? But at the same time, on the outside where we're out amongst people, you know, I portrayed a completely different version of myself. So it's like the typical, you know, like Bing Crosby, right? Or the, uh, Gene Kelly or, you know, this, this, this very specific idea of what a family man is and how nice they are. And then we start hearing these mem or getting these memoirs of the kids, right? And it's like, my dad, my life inside that world was, was, was pure horror. I, I'm not going to say that I was that bad. But I was pretty damn bad. I I do think that we tend to be hard on ourselves. So take that for what it's worth. I know that I look back on the way I raised Mike. That the reason I think this this book is so interesting, and the reason I think it's so timely, is because I think if if I've said it once, I've said it probably a hundred times. That like like I don't do regret. You know what I mean? I don't sit up nights, you know, thinking about mistakes I've made and just you know what that's just not my that's just not my personality. Except. I do have regrets. I, I you know, and I, and I, and I, I'm having to come to terms with what some have tried to help me with this and say, well, you know, anyway, but, but I, you know, I would, I would raise my kids differently if I could raise them as a 45 year old versus a 22 year old who didn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. Now, I would have had regrets no matter what, because 22 year olds probably shouldn't be raising kids anyway. Um, what the hell do we know? And no one's prepared to be a parent and no one's prepared to do all that. So I try to be uh, as forgiving of myself as I would be to anybody else and say, well, you know, you did the, I, I, I think we did the best we could. But I would have liked a resource like this, I think, to say, okay, well, here's some things I'm, because what happens, John, is, is one thing that you just said when we first started was when you started this deconstruction process and you didn't know what to call it that, but there was no language for any of this either. And so a book like this comes along and starts to put, starts to put flesh on the skeleton of, okay, these are the things I think. Uh, oh, and now you're giving me some language to help articulate what it is I'm thinking already. It can, it can help to navigate some of this stuff. So that, that's helpful to come. That, that's why a community of people will go like, Hey, listen, we know either we've done this already or we're in the process of doing it right now. Matt, Matt DeStefano has a daughter who's what? Nine, 11. I mean, he's still raising some his kid. That, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's, you know, done this. He's been involved in this process for quite some time. So he's 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 on one end of the spectrum. And then there's people like Carl and Laura Forehand who have you know raised their kids, I'm sure, and looking yeah. at it from the other side. And then people like you and me were kind of in the middle, right? Like I started deconstructing when my kids were 
in their teens. And you had that, and you had the unique experience too of then coming back to church after having told your kids their whole lives that church is a crutch. <laughs> and, then God is, and God is fake, and yeah, right. And then having to kind of go, well, I'm going to try this one more time. How do, does that figure into your chapter? I, I can't remember honestly. Uh, well, yeah, because uh, like my wife is so um, so proud of telling me when when I decide to do something, I do it a thousand percent. I don't, I don't, um, I don't kind of go at it with like this ten percent of me going, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. So. You know, I had this experience or whatever you want to call it, this breakthrough, you know, about seven or eight years ago now. And I thought, okay, I think I might be wrong. I think, I think there might be something to this faith thing. Uh, Even in my darkest moments, even in my moments where I was calling myself an atheist, I was still searching for something to fill that void that I, that I didn't know what it was. And, uh, for anybody who, knows me, knows that I, I have searched, I have, I have studied. Uh, do I call myself a Christian anymore? No. But did I, did I venture back into that? Yes. But I also ventured into Buddhism, Taoism, uh, other things. I call myself someone who follows a faith of a higher being. Um, I don't know who, who, what he, she, they are, but, um, there is definitely, I believe, uh, some kind of divinity that is, that is bigger than us. But, um, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I was just curious how, how that played out with your kids. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And, right. and if, uh, if, if that figured into the chapter you wrote on, on, on. Yes. So which, what is the title of your chapter, by the way? I totally forgot. Oh my God. Something about love. Yeah, I think it's make, making. I'm going to go from memory. I'm going to say making space for love. No, yeah, I think, making, I think you're right. Making space for love. Uh, making space for love. Yes, that's it. Um, I I should have checked that before. Um, <laughs> you should have checked on the chapter you wrote. That's yeah. right. I don't remember half the stuff I write because it's, it's usually you know bullshit. <laughs> but yeah, there was there was a weird. I don't even know what to call it. There was a there was some time there where you know yeah, I have teenage children as I'm doing this, right? So my daughter is just starting high school as this is all kind of coming to a head as, as I'm changing my opinion. And it became kind of a, an inside joke in the house, right? That, you know, dad, dad believes in God. And it would be like this whole, well, you know, now that you're a Christian, uh, what exactly does that mean? I mean, can you drink anymore? Can you do this anymore? It was all this like joking about it. And, and again, I hadn't dealt with my shame. I hadn't dealt with the trauma that pushed me out of church to begin with. I hadn't dealt with any of that at this point. So as I feel I'm getting, and I'm sorry, Christians, but we all do this. And if you don't, if you don't understand it, then I don't know what to tell you, but I started to feel like I was being picked on, that I was being, um, what's the word that I was being, um, was you being uh, disrespected? Disrespected uh, in the church, you know, how the church feels like it's uh, like, no, everyone's out to get them. And so I'm just part of that now. And so I would push back in my kids and say, hey, this is, this, you know, that's not nice. You can't do that. You need to respect where I am on my, on my journey, blah, 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 right? Blah. But that's the typical Christian response because we don't want to acknowledge anybody else's journey other than our own journey. So that was difficult. A lot of eating crow, 
a lot of saying, okay, yeah, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong now. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of, a lot of humility has to come with that, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, as, as a, as a person who hasn't dealt with this idea of male, female roles in family, I've just pushed it aside for years and years and years. All I do is go right back into that. And so I push back at my kids. I push back at my wife. Uh, actually, what I thought was going to be a, a very peaceful and, and really awesome transition into me becoming a better person, I became worse. I became more vengeful, more angry, more tyrannical than I was prior to that. And I thought it would be the exact opposite. I thought I'd find peace, understanding, love, which is everything I was touting on Facebook. I mean, if you go back five years ago from now, six years ago, all you're going to see is me just trying to show the love to the world. But behind closed doors, I was an asshole. Probably I, I, I doubled down on a lot of this. So it wasn't until my daughter turned 18 and I'm like, I'm going to literally lose her if I don't, I'm going to lose my whole family. I'm already in the process of losing my wife. I'm going to lose my daughter. My boys are going to follow suit because they're so close. I'm going to lose my whole family if I don't get help. And so that was the beginning of me having these long conversations with my wife about what I've always considered as me being lazy, uh, you know, having a quote unquote bad day to, oh no, um, I'm severely depressed. I have major anxiety and I need help. Like lots of help. Wait, isn't it weird too, John? And I'm coming to terms with this right now too, that first of all, the church doesn't know what to do with depression. So we, we, this is not a topic of conversation. And, and let's be fair, people in general don't know what to do with depression, but most people don't claim to have answers and then screw you. So um, the church doesn't get a pass on this, even though they're, you know, they're in the same boat as everybody else. But I have found that um, in my own experience, depression does not manifest itself the same for everybody. So there are, there are sort of, I guess, stereotypical symptoms we think of with depression, which we think of as someone as being sad and melancholy. And that's not always the way it is. Sometimes depression manifests itself as lack of energy or lack of, you know, maybe I, I don't, I don't, for myself, it's when I, when I get sort of, when I get into a depression mode, I, I just begin to isolate. Well, it doesn't help that, you know, and <laughs> I don't remember, was it Ellen? Who was it that we talked to that says, most introverts don't want to talk about how they're introvert. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yeah. so, anyone who wants to sit down and talk to you at nauseum about their introvertness is probably not an introvert. Right. Because yeah, introverts, yeah, they 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 unite at home by right. themselves. Right. So <laughs> just the idea of, of even proclaiming that about myself is is uncomfortable. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh so you know, putting again, putting it all out there on the table. So I'm, I'm an introvert. And for anybody who doesn't understand that, it doesn't mean I'm shy. Uh, there are moments where I am, I can be the life of the party. I can, I can be funny. I can, I can make, you know, I can move around a lot of people and be fun. But there's a point where that completely depletes my energy. Yeah, for sure. So 
add that to years of me trying to make it as a musician and play out in clubs and bars, add to that this undiagnosed uh, severe tr- depression that I had, which I I labeled as lazy because there would be days where I could, literally couldn't get out of my recliner. I'd sit in my recliner and I just was embarrassed at how little I could do in a day. And so, again, shame shows itself and says, see, look at, you're just a piece of shit. You can't, you can't even get up and do the dishes. Right, right. But, but then toss on top of that, you're a guy who routinely goes to work and does his job. Yeah. Right. So, so you're like, so you can, you can give yourself these conflicted, like, well, I'm not lazy. I go to work. I take care. I, I, I put myself out there for others, but sometimes I don't have anything left over for my family. Right. So I mean, that was me. You know what I mean? Well, and, it was like, and then, and then on top of that, the anger that you put towards everyone else in your family who then also doesn't do what you consider their role. Right, expectations right. that they follow in, right? So my wife also suffers from depression, and while I'm <laughs> so while I'm suffering from depression that I have got that's gone undiagnosed for years and years and years, I have the audacity to tell my wife to just get over it. <laughs> yeah, because uh, obviously nothing's really wrong. I'm standing right in front of you, and all the feelings that you're feeling aren't real. Because I'm standing in front of you telling you that you're fine. Just snap out of it. I mean, that was probably one of the hardest apologies I've ever had to do. And honestly, she, she doesn't need to accept it. Uh, I hope over time she will because I don't, I can't tell you how many times I looked her straight in the face. It's like, uh, you're fine. I don't know what your problem is. Snap out of it. We got shit to do. Um, but then I would go on my little, whatever, tyrants. And I would sit in my recliner for days on end. And she'd come home from work and like, well, what did you do today? I'm like, um, play video games. Because <laughs> honestly, I did not explain to her that I, I had no, I had zero ability to get up out of my chair and do life. But again, that goes back to this idea that men are supposed to be the ones who go out and do the work women are supposed to be the ones that clean the house. So I give myself a pass, right? Because what was I supposed to do at home on my day off anyway? Nothing. Because I'm the man of the house. You're supposed to recover. If anything, you know, maybe go cut some wood for the fire, you know, because that's man's work too. Yeah, for sure. So it was years and years of me telling her to get over her depression and sitting in denial of my own and being quote unquote, a monster to her and my kids. Like I said, um, my daughter turning 18, I just realized I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my whole family. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to be that guy in some upstairs apartment in some place in downtown, whatever city, uh, that people walk by and go, Hey, remember that guy? Yeah. Well, he's kind of drinking his life away now, isn't he? Because the, he has nobody. So I had to come to grips with that. I, I needed help and I needed help bad. And I told my wife, I was like, I, I think I need therapy. And she's like, yeah, you do. Coming to this conclusion, yeah. John. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, uh, I am, I'm not a thousand percent better. I'm not even 10% better, but I am better. 
And for all those people out there in the world who says that medication is a crutch, that medication doesn't work, that you should just pray your depression away, pray your anxiety away. Yeah. Well, I have just, I have, I have two words for you. Fuck you. I just had a conversation with my wife and I, and I asked her, I was like, now that I'm on medication, now that I'm going to therapy, am I a better person? And she says, yeah, you are a better person. We just don't know each other anymore. Oh, yikes. Okay. So, but, and, and she's not wrong. So now guess what I get to do? And I, no, I shouldn't say get, guess what I want to do? I want to reintroduce her to the person that she fell in love with 30 years ago. Yeah, for sure. And so do I have any right to do that? No. Do I have any obligation or does she have any obligation to believe any of this? Absolutely not. So it's a daily goal of mine to show her that I am the person that she met 30 plus years ago, that I can, I can show her love and respect and I can show her children love and respect and I can show her that I changed. And so that's, I mean, that is <laughs> a very long-winded version of my chapter. No, it's, uh, but it's good me. because the whole making space for love thing means that we, you know, we make room for each other in our searching. And, you know, your wife has had her own searches and she's got her own things. You guys have each contributed to the parenting of your children and you've had to make space for each other to do those things the best that you knew how. The biggest thing for us, I think, I think you and I are actually in a very similar boat in, in certain ways with our kids being grown now and we're mostly grown and now allowing them to become the people that they want to become or that they're supposed to become, however however that looks to you, and leaving room for them to be that without a whole bunch of expectations from us on how they should end up. Right. You know what I mean? So we all had, you know, everyone, anyone who says they've had kids and didn't have expectations about how that would go, they'd be lying to you. Of course, we all had expectations and sort of dreams for our kids and things we thought they would do and we're all having to come to terms with how those things actually turn out, right? Well, I think that you and I have very similar ideas from our background, right? We uh, And this is not to disparage our parents. I, I Our parents did an amazing job. Um, they stayed together when families around them were falling apart. My parents, our, our parents, did the best they could with the information they were given from their parents. For sure. And But it took me a long time to give them a pass on some of the shit that I feel that they messed up on. So as I'm moving forward and I'm like trying to figure out a way to express this to my children, and it's, it's, it's just that is, um, I no longer have any expectations. I have zero expectations of what they should or shouldn't do as they move forward in their life. I mean, I think you and I can both remember, uh, I want to say it was days after Greta and I got married that it was like, so when you're having kids. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. It was one of the first things I made a conscious effort not to say to my daughter when after they got married, she got married to Jesse, was I that it's none of my business. Yeah. My kids will have kids if and when they're ready. Yeah. Uh, if they choose to never have kids, that's their path. That's their life. And then I have to I have to find my place in that and I need to be okay with that. And I am okay with that. You know, jokingly or whatever, I say, hey, you know, if you guys do decide to have kids, all I ask is that I don't be that grandpa that can't do anything. Right. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to be in a wheelchair when you make this decision. But at the same time, uh, that's a joke, right? I mean, 
yeah, there's probably some expectation in that too. And maybe I shouldn't joke like that, but you know, that's, that's who I am. Well, I'm gonna I, mean, joke. I don't know. We, I, I joke with, you know, I've got, you know, I have four kids, you have three. My youngest is 22. My oldest is pushing 30. I have two grandkids and I've got one on the way. And Stephen and Holly, my third son, and you know, they've been married two years now. I bust their chops all the time. Like, <laughs> when? When? Come on. Come on. Hook a guy up while I'm young. I need a, I need a full, you know, I need a full quiver of grandchildren. Um, but it is, it is good natured. There really is no expectation. They'll have kids when they're damn well good and ready if, if, if they will. If the old, the only thing I, I say to them is like, and again, this is like, it's always with a caveat. It's like, I'm not telling you, you have to have grandkids, but if it's on your radar, if that's something that you're, or not grandkids, but you have kids, which would make me have grandkids. If you're thinking about having kids, just do it while you're still on my insurance. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we have and, really good insurance. And that's the 21st century grandfather mentality. Listen, yeah. before you hit 25 and you age out of my insurance. <laughs> and, and again, it's not, it's, it's no expectation. If you're, if you're saying, you know what, I'm not having kids till I'm 30. It's like, okay, that's, that's cool. That's I'm right. just saying, but it's if it's going to be on you though, right. don't come looking but for a financial handout. But if it's on your radar <laughs> in the near future, then just, I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. That, you know, that's part of the plan then. Um, cause I would love my kids to be able to use my insurance. My insurance is great. It's awesome. Yeah. Hey, let's, while well, we got a little bit of time left, let's, let's, let's tackle some of these questions from the group real quick so we can right. say that we did it. Uh, before we move on, though, John's chapter is really awesome. He 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 says it was long winded. He hasn't really touched the surface of it. So there's a lot there's a lot in there. So make sure and buy the book. Support your local boutique publishing house and your local little authors like us. You know. And also just just to just as a reminder, uh, all of us authors have have given up any royalties on the book. We are giving all of the royalties to. Um, and I'm going to be. I, I'm sorry. I don't remember the name of the. Uh, the charity, but it's it's a charity for children with mental health issues and um, abuse issues. So good deal. Uh, uh, we're not taking any profit. Every single author has agreed to do that. So uh, the good. more money we make, the more money goes to this donation, which is really really cool. I love that, man. That's a good idea. Cool, cool. All right. Well, our first question isn't really a question, but Brian Hager mentioned something about churches taking advantage of insecure parents to get them to reject their gay children. And throw them out of their house. Um, this is a topic that we have discussed quite a bit with like Sarah Cunningham and others who've come on to talk about, you know, the free bomb hugs and things. There, there is quite a bit of pressure on parents of, you know, who are still inside of an evangelical church. Okay. This is not every church, but this is a, you know, um, within certain brands of evangelical Christianity that if their kids come out, that they're supposed to show them some kind of tough love, right? And the tough love is, well, you know, you can be gay, but just be gay somewhere else. I think the church is complicit in this. I think it's abominable. Um, it, I think it's heartbreaking. I am happy to say that of my friends who are evangelical, that I, and I have a handful of close friends who, who are still inside of the church pretty, pretty staunchly and who have had kids come out, they have not taken this tack. So on the one hand, I'm happy for that. You know what I mean? Like I have not seen yeah. them disowning their kids and being really ugly about it. What bothers me is I still see them being that way towards other people's kids. Right. So it's like they've made an exception for their kid and they're dealing with it and they're being open. 
but their theology hasn't changed. Like they still, <laughs> like they still think they're going to hell. Yeah, it's like it's like a cop being okay with his his, his child's criminal background. Right, and helps in, every for it. Right. in every way possible, I'm going to keep that kid out of jail. But every other kid is doing what my kid's doing. God, yeah, they're going to jail. Yeah. Now, that being said, I, I am aware of one family, their daughter's coming out has imploded the family. And it's simply because the parents will not accept her, will not accept her spouse, will not accept her quote unquote lifestyle. And they think they're loving her by not accepting her and by distance, basically cutting her off. Yeah, and that's 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 a level of bullshit that I just I just can't I can't be okay with anymore. That this is like I show you love by disassociating from you because that's what that's what what Jesus would do. Well, it, no. it's re- well, and what's ridiculous here in, in this case, and I know this is not unique, so I know this has happened and it does continue to happen. But this young lady um, attempted to take her own life over the the pain of losing her family over something she cannot and should not have to control or change, right? right? right. Um, and so she, even even though, even armed with that information, knowing that their daughter is self-harming and has at least taken, has attempted to take her life once, they still cannot be, they can't be brought around on this. And that, that, that to me is a level of, of religious indoctrination that I, it, it borders on the, on the cultish, you know what I mean? This is one of those ones that gets me so riled up and so angry. You have people within the religious right, the moral majority, whatever you want to call them, the evangelical fundamentalist church that says, see, see, just look. As these people come out of the closet or whatever you want to call it, they become more depressed. But what they fail to see is that as, as their, as their children, their siblings, their, these family members come out of the closet, and show themselves as the true person that they are and have always been, the hate that is directed at them is unsurmountable to the point where they are in so much pain that they think the only way out is to take their own life. And, and they want to, they want to trivialize it and say, see, they should be, if this is, if this is truly who they are, they should be happier now. But you people make it impossible for them to be okay with who they are. Well, when when they have the audacity to come out and you reject them, you don't then get to stand on your moral high horse and say, "Well, look, you're not why why aren't you happy about this?" Well, you you know, and and try as we might, you know, from the outside looking in, I can tell someone and you know what, who cares what they think? Except they're your family, except they're your parents, and try as you might, you know, you, you might not want to care what they think. But I'm sorry. You have deep you have deep psychological ties to these people, and their opinion their opinions matter. And so, none of my kids, to, to my knowledge, are in that situation. If they, if any one of them was to come to me today, my response would be a whole lot better than it would have been 20 years ago. But we're so you know the the church is complicit in this. The church has got blood on its hands because of how it's dealt with this whole issue, um, and how it's decided that you know one group of people was was still okay to marginalize. So I don't know. I, Brian, it's a good question. I agree with you. Churches do a lot of times take advantage of insecure parents who don't know what to do in this situation. And, and, and listen, I'm sympathetic to not knowing what to do in this situation. I hope we get to a point in our human evolution where we say, really, this is an issue? Like, like, I don't, like, like kids won't have to come out. We'll just know our kids. And I, I'd just like to add, and, and we're not getting paid for this endorsement. <laughs> But, um, why not? The hell, man. 
there there's a website you can go to and it's obviously it's not for every city but mostly in the big cities you can definitely use it unfortunately in, in my area i know of two affirming churches here that are openly affirming they're not on the list yet so i'm hoping they'll be on soon but if you go to a, a website called churchclarity.org uh you can um what that what that site does and it doesn't it, it doesn't only show you that churches that are affirming but it does show you their faith back or net you're better at this than I am since you're in a church. Like There's, statement of faith or... Right, your statement of faith. And uh, it, it it will tell you if they have a statement in there, either affirming or non-affirming. So you will know before you even step in their church if they're affirming or non-affirming, or they have not even made any claim. Gotcha. Um, so it's the plus to that is it, it allows you to find churches in your area that are openly affirming. Yeah. Um, so this is one step you don't have to work about or worry about or wonder if where the church stands. You know, I've gone into two churches when I try to go back into the church that were not affirming. Yeah. And I thought I could, I could work within that. You get the same canned response. Everybody's welcome here. We love everybody. Yeah. As long as they're committed to change once they get there. But they, you will not hear anything from the pulpit that tells you that they affirm anything outside of what they consider, quote unquote, a normal relationship between the man and the woman. And then there's no chance of anybody within the LGBTQIA plus community playing in the worship team, being a Sunday school teacher, God forbid, asking to preach. That's not going to happen in any of these churches. So churchclarity.org will give you at least a stepping stone into a church that you know is openly affirming, which is a, a step in the right direction. For sure. Yeah, my experience in that regard has always been even the churches that were quote unquote tolerant, they had their, their boundaries are pretty well set. You know what I mean? So you could, sure, you know, be gay. That's fine. We might even let you serve coffee and help people park their cars, but we won't let you in the nursery because in the back of their minds, they still think that everyone's a pedophile, you know, because that's where their, their brains still are. Um, You're either a pedophile or there's some, you know, out, you know, there's some kind of gay agenda that you're working on, right? Yeah, they're out to groom somebody. Yeah, the, the gay agenda. Good God. And uh, and so just so everyone's clear, the gay agenda is that we treat everybody with respect and love. Yeah, maybe maybe the people, who, regardless of their of their orientation or their gender identity or whatever, that they can pursue their lives um, unencumbered by your opinions. How about that? And, and anybody that's not on <laughs> that agenda, you can pound sand because... You know, I don't have I don't have time for you. You can pound sand in very specific places, but regardless <laughs> of that. So, Brian, that's a good question. Um, I hope we tackled that well. I hope you get at least a sense from John and I that that we agree with you that churches have played a uh, they have played a role in this. You know, and and every time we get a church leader on and we talk about it, we try to fix uh, some attention on the fact that the church is, has done a pretty bad job of dealing with this issue. Um, and has focused in on certain quote unquote sins that they think are, are apparently more important than others. But, and there's a lot of that, you know, when, when parents are young and they're insecure, like you mentioned in your question, um, where do we go to ant for answers? You know, a lot of us are conditioned and programmed. Well, we, we should go, we should go to our churches and our pastors and we should seek counsel there. And I'm just, I'm just not optimistic that a lot of times we're getting good advice, you know, that we're going to get good counsel. Well, we can also we can also mention the uh, documentary that either just came out or is coming out really soon, right? Nineteen forty six. Nineteen forty six. Yeah, I yes. have, uh, and we're going to have 
hopefully in January have one of the I think producers or someone someone involved with the with that film. Right. Um, I've reached out to them and they've agreed to come on the podcast. They in January sometimes. So cool. um, yeah, I, I can't wait for that. It's 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 good stuff. Uh, let's move on. Tony Fitzsimmons asked us how do you, how do you deal with what happens when your kids reject Christ because of all the stupid friends. Because of all, I'm thinking he says all your stupid friends with inflexible theology. <laughs> okay, I have personal experience with this. I have four kids. I would say that two of them are professing Christians. One is pretty agnostic, and then one is a self-described atheist. What do I do? I don't do anything. They're my kids, man. It also helps that um, you know I'm a bit of a universalist, and so my my thoughts on this are that I believe in God and I believe in love. I believe that love wins. There's no hostility on my one kid's part who does not believe in God. He just doesn't, you know. And um, if that's enough to get that so-called God of the universe pissed off and chuck him into some eternal torture chamber, then I don't know what to tell you about that God anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I'm at the point now where if if that God is is the true God and he's going to send my children to hell because they don't profess some kind of Christian faith, then just send me with them because I don't want I don't want to be there either. The likelihood, John, if that's enough, we're all there with them anyway. Right. Because I got enough stuff on my conscience. To, <laughs> that, so I, I don't know. I, I guess my my only advice, and I think John would probably echo this in his make space for, you know, make space for love chapter would be, we make stuff, we make space for our kids to make their own choices. Um, and then we have to somehow, and I do, trust that this God that I do believe in believes in my kid too. And that his belief and his faith is is way more important than mine anyway. I trust him. I place my kids in the hands of that creator that I that I that I believe in and I and I trust that entity to be merciful and to be good. And I trust my kid to make good choices because he's 22 now and it's on him, you know? But yeah, when that that's a that is a very real place of tension for Christian parents. I've I've had I've had lots of parents uh friends of mine reach out to me over the last few years. In fact, I can think of a couple in particular, who were just beside themselves because their kid came and told them they didn't believe in God anymore. And they were like, they were apoplectic. They didn't know what to do. Well, I think part of that problem is they, they and, I, and I can I can understand this for, to a certain extent because I, I never raised my kids this way, but I think in some, some semblance, they consider themselves a failure. Oh, no, absolutely they did. That was what this person expressed to me in a several, several, private messages we, we, we talked back. And this is someone I've known for 20 years. So it's not, you know, so uh, she was very, very upset. I would venture to guess that it was, it, I would almost say it's the exact opposite. You raised a kid who has the ability to look at all the aspects of what this faith brings or doesn't bring. And they made a conscious choice to say that it's not for me. Well, and the, the same way that we say make space for love, I would say make space for growth. Yeah. You know, let, you know, let's talk to the 30 year old kid and see, you know, I, but listen, there's this underlying weird evangelical Christian doctrine, you know, where, okay, well, he's now turned his back on Jesus. If he gets in a car crash tomorrow and dies, I can't help him anymore. So there's this real sense of urgency that you got to keep your kids inside the fold to protect their eternal future. Um, that's a lot of pressure, man. Even though their Bible says that uh, even death can't separate you from the love of God. So 
Well, don't don't oversimplify, John. You know, Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. So, oh, um, right, right, you know, right. Don't 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 forget that. You know, there's a weeping and gnashing of teeth, John. Um, anyway. Oh yeah, I don't <laughs> um, know. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I, if I was to be so bold as to give advice, I would say, just like John will argue in his chapter, that we make space for love, that we make space for our our children, especially as they're grown and they're growing, um, to make their own choices, to be their own people. And that I would, I, what I did with this person, I, and I'm, I'm forever grateful to Brad Jersak for that chapter in his book, A More Christ-Like God, where he walked through this process with a young lady who was just beside herself about a, you know, somebody she loved. And he walked her through this process of basically asking her, did she trust Jesus? Did you trust, can you put your grandma, in this case, it was this girl's grandmother she was concerned about. So we do, do, do you trust Jesus? Can you place your grandmother in his hands? And as, and as she walked, like actually went through the process of doing this, she said, you know, in the book, he says that she could, he could just see the weight lifting off of her. Well, I would say the same thing with all of our kids. Can we, can we trust Jesus? Um, can I place my children in his hands and say, listen, it's, it's too much pressure for me to try and get them to do something. So yeah, I would say make space for all of that. I would. Remind people, especially people who call out anyone who considers themselves any, any form of universalist, that that's a cop out and that allows us to make space for this, that you don't understand what that means. You don't understand what allowing God, Jesus, the divine universe, whatever you want to call it, to be the ultimate savior of every person on the planet. Or in the universe, you know, if we want to be really weird and just say that maybe we're, we haven't even seen everybody that gives you a level of security that allows you to make space for love, make space for people to go on their journeys and not make them feel like they're a loser, that they've lost connection with God or whatever. It gives you. The ability to still connect and have a friendship, a love, you know, loving reflect, friendship or relationship with these people. Whereas if you stay so staunch in this evangelical fundamentalist idea of, of what Christ is, like we talked about earlier, then you have to break all these friendships, all these relationships and you, and you just leave them out in limbo with no connection to anybody. And it's how, bonkers, dude. It's never, it's never gonna, it's never gonna work. It's just nope. isn't. Never, never, never. You're right about that. All right. Two more questions. Then we gotta, then I gotta go make dinner. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, James Early says his kids are all grown. How do I correct mistakes I made years ago? James, that's an excellent question. I would say grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, you can't correct, we can't correct those mistakes. Um, actually, well, here's what I'm gonna do, John. I'm gonna tie these next two questions together. Um, because Lola asked a really good question about accountability. Um, she says, what does accountability look like for you now? James, I would say those two questions go hand in hand. How I correct the mistakes, or I try to, I can't correct them, obviously, without a time machine. But how I correct those mistakes in, in, to the degree that I can is accountability. I have had conversations with each of my kids, and I've owned the bullshit. And I have, I have apologized and said, listen, you know, if I could do this all over again, I would do this differently. I, you know, I, I, I was never big on corporal punishment. All right. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure inside of my evangelical world that I was supposed to not spare the rod so as to not spoil my child. And so I did spank my kids. 
Uh, my wife will attest to the fact that I always did so grudgingly and I did so at some point I just told her I wasn't doing it anymore. I'm like, this is dumb. First of all, I don't think it works. Second of all, I, I just, it, it never felt right, you know? And so I've talked to all of my kids and I've said, listen, I, I, there's things I did when you were growing up that I, I own, you know, that I, I, you know, I won't make excuses. I did the best I could with the information I had. Uh, my intentions were usually good, but accountability means owning, owning your mistakes and, and hopefully making room for forgiveness. And all of, you know, my kids have all been very gracious and said, you know, yeah, you were terrible, but we love you. Um, <laughs> the best compliment that my daughter, my oldest daughter has, has given me in any of this is she doesn't spank her kids. And I'm like, okay, that's how we fix this. Yeah. How we fix this is the next generation says, okay, well, that's just because my, just because my parents are this way. Does, you know, and I get so, God, I hate that shit. You know, I hate it so much when people are like, listen, when I was a kid, this, 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 you know, this happened to me and this happened and I turned out fine. Well, my first response to that is, you're probably not fine. Yeah, that's my first response. No, you're not. And my second response would be, just because you, maybe, maybe you weren't permanently damaged, doesn't mean that's a, that's a, you know, that's a recommendation for living your life. You know, lots of people who get, you know, lots of people get cancer and survive, doesn't mean they wish cancer on people. Well, I think, uh, I think it was Matthew DeStefano says, uh, well, you know, it's like saying, well, I drank through all my pregnancies and all my kids turned out fine. So everybody should drink through their pregnancies. You know, there's always going to be an outlier that doesn't fit what we say, you know, the, the norm, which is, hey, if you drink during pregnancy, bad things happen to the child. Right. Uh, if you smoke during pregnancy, that bad things happen. Um, but it doesn't always happen, right? For me, and this is another, this is another, okay, so. It's an oversimplification of a moment in my life. And I talk about this in the book too. I talk about uh, an intervention brought upon myself. And you know, to Nat's credit, I don't think Nat was there. I really don't think you were there. I know I wasn't um, there. And, um, I, 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 and I, it doesn't mean I wouldn't have been there. I like to think right. I would have told them all to go kiss my ass, but I wasn't there. So the way that intervention broke me, and it wasn't until in this last year that I realized what it did, and for those who are there, and I'm not going to name names. I've never named names. If you're, if you happen to listen to the podcast and you know you were there, you know, you can take ownership of whatever. I don't care. But what happened was I had to, to get out of that moment, I had to break down and, and fall apart and cry and tell them I would be a better person. And what that did to my psyche, what that did to whatever my inner child, whatever you want to call it, was I then from that point on knew that the only way that I would know that my child understood what I needed from them is if I could break them down to the point where they cried. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Oof. I, I can relate. And so I, I, I can say that I, I, I can, I've spanked my kids very few times. But that does not me does not let me off the hook because I got in my my kid's face and railed on them until I got the tears, which then I felt was me breaking through whatever facade so they understood the the enormity of their mistake. Yeah, you know, and tears equal contrition. So now right. now they're properly regretful of their choices. Yeah, there's some there's some messed up stuff, man. I and I have it. to I really have to point it to that because I I I can't point it at my our parents. I just can't. I don't know of a single time where any either one of our parents required that of me as 
as part of the, the acknowledgement that I understood how bad I was. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I can't even really lay the corporal punishment stuff at our parents' feet, although they did do corporal punishment. It was sparing. That was not, that was not a guy who liked mom. Mom was a little freer sometimes with, with the, <laughs> with the smack of the wooden spoon. Yeah. This subject actually <laughs> came up at, uh, at Thanksgiving dinner. Did it and, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, now it, you have to tell. Well, and again, my parents, I love both my parents. I, I doesn't mean they didn't screw up though. Come on. I have nothing but the utmost respect for both my parents. But I did tell the story of where I, I, and you know, obviously I don't know what I did to deserve it, but something I did required a paddling. And so, you know, our mom pulls out the wooden spoon mm-hmm. and she proceeds to smack me with it and it breaks. And I thought that was funny. Yeah. So I laugh. And so mom gets the bigger wooden spoon and proceeds to hit me with that. And it breaks. So I laugh because now she's broken two spoons over my ass. So then she goes and gets the ruler because rulers don't break. And I got a beating with a ruler. And, and it was just, it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, I didn't do that to my kids with a stick, but I did that with my words. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I did too. And so that's, that's the one I'm, I'm dealing with right now. That's the one that I'm trying to break down those walls and say, Hey, that, that person was wrong. Yeah. And that's, and that's accountability, right? I mean, yeah, that's holding yourself accountable for the stupidity that was you. So Lola, for me, and maybe you have a, a different definition of this. Hopefully, um, you'll share it with us if you do. For me, accountability always means owning your mistakes and being committed to change. You know, I cannot, as much as I would, as much as I would love to, I can't go back and fix it. But can't take, that's, that's what I try. The one thing I did try to tell my kids as they were growing up is there were, you cannot take words back. They're out there and they've done the damage they're doing. Um, so be careful with your words. And, and I wasn't always careful with mine. You know, there were, there were times when, when I was downright spiteful with mine. And well, we were also raised with this idea, right? That sticks and stones can break my bones. Oh, yeah. Words will never words hurt will me. Never but hurt me. Words, words, words do so much damage. All we have to do is look at, look at the family that raised that kid that went in and shot up Club Q. Yeah. Um, what the hell, man. You're going to tell me that words don't matter. Yeah. I saw the interview with his dad. Words matter. The way he was raised have, had part to do with the person that he became and thought it was okay to go in and shoot up a gay nightclub. Um, yeah. That so words matter. They yeah. do matter. So, and so anyone who tells you they don't, they're a liar. They don't understand and, uh, they're, they're deceiving themselves and they should get bent. All right. I was just, I was just checking to make sure I got all the questions. There were some good questions. So Lola, James Early was the one, was, was, was the third question. So I want to make sure we mention them there. If you're not part of our private Facebook group, by the way, and you want to be asked an occasional question, you should uh, find (laughs) us on Facebook, uh, and, uh, and join the private, the private group. Well, like, like we said, we're going to, we're going to try to do these more often. Um, you know, as a kind of a half joke, right? Our our private group is like, stop having authors on. You just make me have to buy more books, right? So, so we just um, had a non. A, well, no, we had you on. You're an author. Damn it, John! Another book to buy. 
Although, okay, so Jabba, I'm not saying that you don't have to buy the book because of me, but I would I, I would recommend you buy the book because of the other authors. Okay, um, I'll say buy the book because of John. Come on, but man. what's cool? What's Give really cool about What's really cool about this book is we have everything from people like me who don't call themselves Christians anymore, but believe that there is some kind of divinity to someone like Derek Day, who is just an outright atheist. Uh, and, and I, and I love him for it. I love what he brings to the table as someone in that position. You have someone like Dr. Mark Karras, who brings a whole different idea to this, you know, from a more of like a, like a, um, I don't want to say therapist, but that, that side, yeah, but, right? But he is a therapist. Right, but and, and um, so specifically a family therapist. Right, and then you have you know people like Keith Giles who have adult children who he says you know um, like his chapter he's almost like apologizing to his kids for who he was. And I think we all are to a certain extent, um, but just the just the diversity within the authors who bring a bring this book together is just I, I, I'm I'm honored to be part of it. You know. And so proud that it was that it's out and it's out by you know our favorite publishing company Choir. Woohoo, Choir! Is, right on. Um, as a boutique publishing company, I think it's putting out just kick-ass stuff. And uh, if you don't follow Choir and and so you get you know, information about their books that are coming out, I, I recommend you do that as well. Yeah, they've got some big stuff coming too. I can't talk about it, but there's been a couple of new authors signed that are 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 uh, pretty big gets. So. There's some stuff coming out that's going to be pretty awesome. Um, eventually, a book by yours truly as well. Yeah. So there's stuff coming, man. That's going to be really fun. So anyway, well, I, I have and I have. They have my tra- They have my transcript. They have my. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Manuscript. Manuscript. Uh, yeah. For my book, which is needs some editing, so Get I actually should be doing that. working on that. So maybe I'll Good. work on that tonight. You never know, All right, man. Good idea. Finish. Uh, finish your man. Your not your Manhattan. Your old fashioned or whatever. All right, I'm going to let it go there because there's a ribeye sitting on my kitchen counter that needs to be cooked and I'm starving. What? So I have Oh, man. Now I'm jealous. So, all right. I'm glad that you guys came. We appreciate you all for coming. Buy the book, buy the book. Uh, Support your local authors and, uh, you know, buy the book. So, good job, John. I think we we were, you were wondering if we'd have another talk about and it's been an hour and 18 minutes. Look at that. Apparently, we have (laughs) shit to say. So, (laughs) (laughs) we did it. Is it interesting? We'll yeah, that's another question. Decide. We'll yeah. see if it gets like four downloads. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Peace. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.